bargain with his bibulous gardener that if the man would stay sober, Washington would allow him a dram of liquor in the morning and a drink of grog at night, along with four dollars at Christmas to let him get drunk for four days and nights. Although Washington was a private citizen, admiring visitors constantly showed up at his door. He kept a hundred cows at Mount Vernon, but the crowds came in such numbers that he was forced to buy butter for their meals. With the stream of guests so unrelenting, A year and a half passed before the day that Washington could dine alone with his wife. He would greet everyone courteously and offer refreshment to men and women who were often unfamiliar to him. With strangers, Washington would withdraw to his chambers soon after supper while his guests remained at the table. But when Washington felt entirely comfortable with the company, he might take enough champagne to lower his reserve and get him laughing. To accommodate his new life as his country's most admired citizen, Washington added bedrooms in the attic of the main house and raised the roof for two new wings. In leisure moments he unleashed French hounds, a gift from Lafayette, to chase the gray foxes Washington bred as quarry. A superb horseman, he was hunting three days a week until that palled, and he passed his time instead by answering the rising volume of letters. Washington also had to cope with the artists and sculptors who importuned him for a chance to capture his likeness. Protective of his role in history, Washington usually agreed to receive them and showed both respect and curiosity for men with a temperament so different from his own. One of them, Joseph Wright, made busts from face masks, and Washington stretched out reluctantly on a cot to let the artist oil his face and daub it with plaster. But when Martha Washington came into the room unexpectedly, her cry of alarm made Washington smile, which, he said, explained the slight twist to his mouth in Wright's finished statue. Another explanation might have been the false teeth he commissioned from a favorite craftsman named John Greenwood. Obliging as Washington tried to be, he resisted when the eminent French sculptor Jean-Antoine Houdon wanted to depict him in Roman garb. Washington apologized to Jefferson, who had arranged the commission, that although he understood the togas were the taste of connoisseurs, he preferred something more modern. Houdon compromised on a military cloak, but insisted on another life mask. Even though his assistant later dropped the cast, Houdon's finished statue captured Washington's broad brow and firm chin, the straight line of his mouth, and his steady gaze. It also conveyed a trace of the shy diffidence that, despite his public austerity, had won Washington so many admirers. For Martha Washington, two children in their household supplied a welcome diversion. After her 27-year-old son, Jackie Custis, died just before the American victory at Yorktown in 1781, the Washingtons agreed to raise his two younger children, five-year-old Nellie and her three-year-old brother, George Washington Custis, nicknamed Wash or Tub. Although Washington enjoyed the little folks, he balked at adding one other relative to the household— His mother, Mary Washington, had complained for years about the way that her George had forsaken her and gone off to fight a war. All the same, Washington had been a dutiful son even when her demands exasperated him. Now, nearing eighty, she was threatening to vacate the house that Washington had bought for her in Fredericksburg and move in with him. For once, Washington found a value in the assault of visitors on Mount Vernon. He wrote urgently to assure her that the constant hubbub would interfere with the serenity that should be her first concern. Mary Washington accepted that argument and stayed on in Fredericksburg until her death from breast cancer. Washington waived the hundreds of pounds in debts that her estate owed him, but a year passed before he sent for the few mementos she had bequeathed to him. Putting on a black armband of mourning, Washington expressed to his sister, 
a hope that she is translated to a happier place. Since Washington had more property than ready cash, his finances were always precarious. Yet he rejected a plan by officials in Pennsylvania to petition the Continental Congress for money on his behalf. Nothing must tarnish his reputation as a patriot who had never exploited his service to the nation. Washington explained that his attitude towards such rewards had been long and well known to the public. He then made an even greater sacrifice by turning down grants of land that the Congress was awarding other Revolutionary War veterans. As Washington had learned, wilderness land was not always a lucrative investment. He had once bought 32,000 uninhabited acres on the Ohio and Great Kanawha Rivers, along with other tracts in the same territory where he had fought for Britain as a young officer during the French and Indian Wars. When he rode out to inspect his holdings, however, Washington was confronted by squatters who had been living on his property for the past ten years. They had cleared the land and built sturdy log houses and refused to accept Washington, hero or not, as their landlord. He hired a lawyer and fumed for the next two years until he won his case. But upon hearing that the squatters were now in my power, Washington declined to distress them further and repeated his earlier offer to rent them the land. The experience taught him how contentious the frontier had become, and he resolved to sell off his western investments. When no buyer was willing to pay 30,000 English guineas for his acreage, Washington was forced to hire an overseer, and that man managed to turn a profit on the land. All the same, Washington's debts forced him to dispose of his accumulated stocks at one-twentieth of their face value. In retirement, Washington had begun to keep a squire's diary, usually limited to the day's weather and the condition of his crops. If he recorded the names of his many guests, for example, on Friday, May 20th, 1785, a Mr. Noah Webster came here in the afternoon and stayed the night, Washington seldom bothered with why they had called or what they talked about. In Webster's case, the lexicographer had come to present in person his plan for a new system of government. When James Madison, a Virginia planter in his mid-thirties, rode to Mount Vernon to spend a weekend, Washington recorded no more than his arrival and the fact that he had left Monday morning after breakfast. Madison was normally no more expansive than his host, but he had observed Washington attentively during his visit and concluded that the scope of his new projects— including a plan for Virginia and Maryland to join in improving navigation on the Potomac, shows that a mind like his, capable of grand views and which has long been occupied with them, cannot bear a vacancy. Madison also saw that a political crisis confronting the United States could force Washington out of retirement and compel him to address again the great issues of his time. That crisis had been building even before the war ended, but Washington's hopeful nature had persuaded him that the unsettled and deranged state of affairs under the Articles of Confederation would be resolved. In the meantime, he could only suggest electing representatives wisely and supporting their attempts to preserve a union welded among the fractious individual states. But Washington's trip west had reminded him how little was binding one state to another. War had given them a common enemy, but now the country had to base its identity on more than opposition to British rule. Without a common purpose, Western settlers, who were likely to be immigrants, might feel no bond with the original states. Washington saw such men standing on a pivot. The touch of a feather would turn them any way. They might even join with the Spanish colonists further down the Mississippi, although at the moment the Spaniards seemed blind to their opportunity. Washington longed for a nation united by high principle— 
To depend on mere commercial self-interest pointed up a central weakness of the Articles, because one state's dissenting vote could kill any legislation. Not only was unanimous agreement required, but if a state's delegates did not show up for a debate, their absence was recorded as a negative vote. That flaw was proving particularly damaging to tax policy. In 1781, the Continental Congress had tried to pay the interest on the federal debt by levying a 5% tax on all imports. Every state approved the legislation except Rhode Island. Two years later, congressional leaders tried again with a tax limited to 25 years. By then the opposition had grown until New York, Maryland, and Georgia joined Rhode Island in rejecting the measure. Washington had endorsed those attempts to raise revenue for his army and watched in the following years as deadlocks and inertia grew only worse. The Confederation appears to me to be little more than a shadow without substance, Washington complained, dismissing the fears of Southerners that they were being dominated by New England. We are either a united people or we are not, Washington wrote to Madison in 1785. If we are not, let us no longer act a farce by pretending to be it. Perhaps his countrymen would have to admit that the British had been right all along when they predicted that the American experiment could not last. To Madison, a major shortcoming in the Articles had been setting up the Continental Congress with only one chamber and then expecting it to act as both legislative and executive branches of government, and he considered the way representation was apportioned to be blatantly unfair. His state of Virginia had sixteen times more residents than Delaware, yet their votes in the Continental Congress counted as the same. Even to amend the Articles required unanimous agreement by all thirteen states. When an economic depression struck and no federal legislation controlled the nation's economy, states passed local laws aimed solely at protecting their own interests. Britain was violating...